Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Shopify. Starting a business is hard and running one is even harder. It takes determination and support to push through the ups and downs, mistakes and experiments. That's why Shopify, a leading commerce platform and partner to business owners, just opened a space in LA to help you start, grow and scale your business. You can book one-on-one support appointments or attend classes and inspiring events. Just visit shopify.com slash LA to get started. That's shopify.com slash LA. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network and presented by Major Domo Media. Today's show is a little bit of a change of pace. My guest today is Kevin Clark, the Ringer's NFL writer. We're going to discuss the parallels between football and cooking. Crazy, I know. Specifically about the roadblock of orthodoxy that stands between progressive ideas and putting it into practice. This is something I'm really passionate about as it pertains to all parts of culture, as revolutionary change is often stifled due to negligible or even counterfactual narratives. We recorded this several weeks ago, so if it doesn't reference more recent events in the NFL season, that's why. But it's more of a broad conversation regarding the innovation of the sport as it correlates to culinary arts. And there are a lot of sort of esoteric comments here and uh, ideas in food and also in the NFL, college, how the game is played and offenses. And honestly, it may not make sense to you. And I apologize. And I tried to edit myself when we did this interview because I didn't want to go down too many rabbit holes that might not make sense to anyone that doesn't follow sports. But I do believe that this is a lot of parallels and not just the football scene, but sports and music in general. They're just how I make sense of the world and how I communicate the things I see in the kitchen to people outside. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ringer staff writer, Kevin Clark. I am with Kevin Clark. What's your title at The Ringer? I'm just a staff writer, NFL writer. But your focus is mainly the NFL. Yeah, I basically only write about football. And I've listened to you on the pod. I've read your articles and I love anyone that covers a sport that like sees it in a different way. And when you write about stuff, you wrote about the spread offense. Mm-hmm. I love reading these articles because it allows me to understand things that are happening in my world, the culinary universe, which might seem far-fetched, but I've seen this my entire life and I just... Don't know how crazy it sounds <laughs> to that. You can find a parallel between cooking and sports, like all kinds of sports, whether it's baseball, basketball, yeah. or football, the whole idea that when revolutions happen mm-hmm. in sports, you have the establishment that says, no, you can't do this. Right. I mean, new ideas make everybody uncomfortable no matter what the industry. Exactly. And there's nothing, I think, as antiquated as the culinary arts. Like they just really? hold on to the old so hard which is why we have so many problems in our industry today in 2018. So I have a hard time understanding the world in a linear fashion. I have to see it through, quite frankly, many things that are sports-oriented for me to have a better understanding. So why I love sabermetrics in baseball, why I love data in basketball Mm -hmm. is, again, it's disproving cultural truths that are not based on reality. Right. Fact. And growing up as a massive football fan, Washington Redskins, I just remember very clearly seeing all of these things that were presumed truths mm-hmm. from college football to pros. You know, I remember Doug Williams won the Super Bowl. Like, he's the first black quarterback that won the Super Bowl. Like, why does that even matter? So when I see that, it's the same thing when I see, like, one of my female chef friends saying, like, 
I don't want to be known as the best female chef. I just mm-hmm. want to be known as the best chef mm-hmm. versus like this changing of French Eurocentric cooking to something that is way more diverse and faster, faster, faster. And I've always been infatuated with the spread offense because of its origins in high school and college and how it's sort of trickled all the way down to the pros. And every step along the way, people said, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Not going to work. But it's going to be all that works in the NFL, it seems. It's literally the story of the 2018 season. And not only that, but it's just this idea that good ideas can come from anywhere, which is essentially the antithesis of the last 95 years of the NFL. There was probably a 20 or 30 year period where there were really three loops of coaches and they only hired their friends and they only ran the ideas that they knew to work and there was almost no innovation. And if you had told even 10 years ago a coach that they'd be stealing plays, literal plays from college, they would laugh at you. I remember I did a story on the Wildcat offense, which was essentially stolen from Arkansas by the 2008 Dolphins. And the players were saying, we could not believe that they were showing us college plays because a pro coach would never stoop so low. And now it's younger coaches. First of all, it's job preservation because if they're not running it, they're going to fail. And it's these quarterbacks who you want to maximize their talents. And so for the first time, ideas are trickling up instead of down. And that has, I don't think you can overstate this, it has changed the sport. And the remnants of the spread offense, the NFL tried to do it with the run and shoot. Atlanta Falcons ran it. Warren Moon ran it. And everyone laughed, right? Yep. What was the reasoning? Why, why wouldn't it work 20 years ago? So the biggest problem was protection of the quarterback. The reason you couldn't run the run and shoot is because guys like Warren Moon were getting the crap knocked out of them. And that's also true of some spread offenses. The reason that some colleges are more comfortable putting their quarterback in danger is because there's not a huge difference between quarterback one and two. And also on an 85 scholarship college team, there might be four or five quarterbacks. So that's always the NFL's reasoning. Well, they don't protect the quarterback. But what coaches like Andy Reid have done or Sean McVay with the Rams is they've combined spread principles, spread plays, spread routes spread concepts with NFL-style protection. And that has changed everything. They're keeping their quarterback upright. They're throwing the ball quicker. If you look at the statistics, essentially get rid of the ball in about 2.3 seconds now across the NFL. It's about a second less than it was 10, 15 years ago. So it's not that they're taking Texas Tech and Oklahoma's entire play. It's that they're taking some of those ideas and merging them with things we know work in the NFL. And I'm going to try to prove this sort of thesis that if you chart the growth and spread of the spread offense Mm -hmm. since its inception in high school and college to where it is today, I think it's actually, it matches the culinary universe in terms of how we cook on high-end cooking today. Okay. I do believe that. But what are the origins of the spread offense? Well, I mean, so the modern spread, the things that are in the NFL now, you have to look at guys like Urban Meyer and Dan Mullen, who were doing this at Utah 15 years ago. Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels picked their brains in 2006. In 2007, the New England Patriots start to spread them out with Randy Moss. Wes Welker used the slot a little bit. And then you start moving and you get into Mike Leach. You get into Lincoln Riley, the Oklahoma, Texas Tech, Big 12 stuff. And that is the stuff now that's influencing guys like Andy Reid, Doug Peterson, the RPO stuff, which again, I think- You called that a lot two years ago. You said this is going to be all yeah, the rage. Yeah, and you exactly. were dead I mean, right. The league-wide completion percentage on RPO passes last year was 78%, which means essentially that the NFL offensive coaches designed a tactic borrowed from college and high school that makes any quarterback, the average quarterback, better than the best quarterback in history, statistically. Hmm. And once you have that cheat code, anything is possible. And why was the spread offense created? 
because the spread offense is easy. It's very simple schemes. Dan Mullen, who's now the coach at University of Florida, was Urban Meyer's offensive coordinator. And he told me the reason they invented a lot of those plays when they were actually a bowling green was because they didn't have all that many good players. And what they wanted to do was they had one or two playmakers. They wanted to spread the defense as much as they possibly could and then get their one or two playmakers alone in space. And once they could do that, then you just get that guy the ball and let him run wild. Okay, so guys like Rich Rodriguez, Urban Meyer, it was a very simple style. At high school and college, it's really easy to tell quarterbacks, okay, you know what? If this safety moves here, throw it here. If this safety moves here, throw it here. That's it. That's the entirety of the offense. How much of that is the antithesis and like an allergic reaction of the wishbone offense and the old school stuff that happened in the mid to late 80s, mid 90s, where it was like, very stagnant. Yeah. You couldn't play unless you were a redshirt junior right. or senior. Like you were sitting on the bench forever learning these very complicated systems of football, right? Like they're teaching you how to play football, but you're not playing. You're also not putting any stress on the defense with those things. I think the spread offense is an extremely aggressive style where the defense is literally spread out. It is spread thin. And so, yeah, it's exactly what we say. I mean, the fetish of coaches for older players was driving those sort of wishbone things and they wanted more complicated stuff. There was always this theory that more words and more complications was a good thing. You know, John Gruden was famous for having like, 20-word play calls. And there were guys at the high school and college level saying, why are we doing this? Why do we have these complicated West Coast schemes with 55 tags or whatever it is onto the play? Just run this damn play and figure it out. Count helmets. Literally look at one guy and count that. So yes, it is a reaction to those run-based schemes like the wishbone from 20 years ago. Is there a correlation with the proliferation of these offenses because it's easier for new coaches to implement. It's easier for recruiting to get someone to be like, hey, I know you want to go to Alabama, but you're going to sit on the bench for three years. I'll start you right away. Yeah. Also, if you're a recruit, if you're a 17-year-old kid and someone says, we're going to pass it 70 times a game versus we're going to run the wishbone and throw it three times a game or we're going to run the option, what are you choosing? You know, I mean, that's the thing. I remember when Mike Leach, I went to University of Miami and Mike Leach was a candidate in Miami and they're saying, well, the recruits won't like that. The recruits won't like the Mike Leach offense because they didn't get you ready for the NFL. Excuse me. If you go into Miami Northwestern High and you say, we're going to pass the ball 75 times a game, everyone's going to touch the ball and we're going to put up numbers you've never seen before. 17 year old kids are going to say, hell yes. But there was, I feel like a lag period in the NFL where- Oh Yeah. People didn't know what to do with college graduates or people that were transferring from the college level to the NFL because they only played in the spread offense, yeah. both as linemen, running backs, quarterbacks. They were not prepared for the delta between what the NFL was trying to implement. As recently as last summer, I mean, as recently as last summer, the college spread has been successful for well over a decade. And as recently as last summer, I had offensive coordinators complaining to me and saying, well, they can't take the snap from center. I'd say, well, wait, why do they need to take the snap from center? Why can't we just run shotgun? And can you talk about that? Like for many, many years, I remember growing up where people thought the shotgun was stupid. Right. And then do you know what the first team to ever run majority shotgun was? Shit. I should know this. Was it the Falcons? It was the 2007 Patriots. Ah, The best offense in the history of football. And... Even that team wasn't enough 
to get everybody in the NFL to say, but hey, the, maybe shotguns. But that, a good that was thing. like these are the kinds of like I say cultural truths, right? Yeah. Something that is based on what? Because it's very similar to like Billy Bean saying, like, wait, I can't draft this Euclid guy because he doesn't look like right. a baseball player. Who made up the rule saying that I can't take a snap? from shotgun because football is only done properly when it's under center. Right. And that kind of like, I'm just going to say like stupidity is prevalent, not just in football, but definitely in cooking too. Like why, why can't I do that? Yeah. And when I see this and I constantly read about it, I'm like, wow, like these are so many things that I have to deal with in my profession. Yet all of a sudden the shotgun proves to be the most dominant way that quarterbacks want the ball now. Right. Well, yeah, and not only that, but if you're going to kind of do these square peg round hole type offenses, Marcus Mariota is a great example. When Marcus Mariota got to Tennessee, they spent hours and hours, probably tallying up to tens or hundreds of hours, just teaching him how to take a snap. The NFL has restricted practice time dramatically, okay? I think you can practice in pads less than once a week during the season, and I think you probably get hundreds of hours less of practice than you did 10 years ago. That's just the new rules of the NFL. Why are you wasting this time? Why are you wasting this time for something that does not matter? You are sacrificing the talent of your team and the chemistry of your team and practice time to teach Marcus Mariota something that really only exists in your outdated mind. It is insane to me. So I have a perfect example. and You see this all the time in kitchens. I had one of my chefs who's a little bit older and he's worked in like really hardcore French kitchens Mm -hmm. and we have this shrimp dish this is going to sound ridiculous, but there was no reason for him to make this core bouillon, which is this really labor-intensive liquid just to cook shellfish in. There's no reason whatsoever to still do this in day and age, particularly when we are limited on hours and regulations of how we can work with our cooks and also their knowledge. They don't care about it. Mm-hmm. We can't force it down their throat, and we're wasting three hours a day for what? You know, and I was like, why are we doing this when we can actually just put all the ingredients in the moment Yeah, and it's easier for everyone? Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Skagen. Cultural identity plays a big part of Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen is named after a Danish coastal town and is inspired by the people who live there. The Danish lifestyle focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, living purposefully, but also making time for good food, good music, and good company. No wonder Denmark is known as the happiest place on earth. Skagen connects the dots between culture and design with watches and jewelry that reflect the less is more concept. Skagen offers men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smart watches in a variety of styles. They create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. Skagen products look right any time of day anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. Because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. Skagen stays true to their heritage, and that makes every design something special. I have a Skagen watch. I love it. I get compliments on it all the time. Visit skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's skagen, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell those unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. 
Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they even give short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last minute bookings. You can also book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com, download the app now. And now, back to the show. When I see this stuff, I can't help but like try so hard to give these sports analogies to my team. They're like, we don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, it's funny because it reminds me a little bit of Chip Kelly where he went in and all he did, I remember talking to Jeffrey Lurie about this, Eagles owner, all he did was he just asked why to everything. Why do we practice on Wednesday services and Fridays instead of Saturday practice, that sort of thing. So do you think you find yourself talking to your team differently than maybe most people in your position? Maybe because I tend to see patterns that I think I understand. And I'm like, that has to be applicable to somehow Mm -hmm. the creation process. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I think about someone like Chip Kelly, that was the first guy through the wall asking why. Mm-hmm. In food, when Farhan Adja, one of the great chefs ever, basically helped create this movement that, you know, molecular gastronomy, that is like the whole idea of like deconstructing and science, science, science. What got lost amongst all the smoke and mirrors was the simple question was like, why? You had a whole generation of chefs being like, why are we going to do it this way? Why does it taste this way? How can we make it better? And That is so important to me because you cannot grow. You cannot make progress unless you reflect to like revisit what the fuck we're doing. (laughs) And that's why I'm a huge Chip Kelly fan, but he's never going to get the recognition I think he deserves because he's, I think, set the template for a lot of coaches in the NFL now. Definitely. I mean, you look at the tempo, you can draw a line between the tempo that he introduced with the Eagles to the tempo the entire league runs with now. So absolutely. I so mean, when I see Chip Kelly, I think of like a chef like Wiley Dufresne in New mm-hmm. York. Was like revolutionary, was the first person to see this is how we got to do it. And no one really appreciated it till after the fact. Why is that? It again goes to this pattern that people don't want to accept change. Is there something in our DNA? It's just like, no. If that's harder than how we're doing it or it seems as the underdog way, that's not what I want. And that's why I'm so attracted to anything in culture, particularly sports, where someone has an idea that is potentially revolutionary. It's based on science and data. Yet, for whatever reason, it doesn't become mainstream because of prevailing popular opinion. That's you, based on nothing. Do you think cooking has the same problem that football has had, which is that people care too much where ideas come from? You know, because if it's a high stuck school, in orthodox, yeah, and that's why I feel like even if you don't like sports, there's so much to learn. Yeah. Because what happens in football can happen in so many other forms, walks of life. And that's why I have always used the spread offense as like, hey, like, I think we need to adopt a lot of these principles. So what happened was with labor changing, with how you could teach cooks, like back when I started cooking, which wasn't that long ago, like they would work us six, seven days a week and all day. And if I want- Literally the NFL. Yeah, literally the NFL. And- so back in the 90s in, in New York, there were only five to six kitchens you could work in okay. to learn, right? Like, and that's why this lineage is very similar to the football yeah, coach lineage. And like, if you wanted to learn how to cook, you had to work at a French restaurant because that was the only place getting good ingredients, really other good cooks. But like the restaurants and the chefs were in control of the cooks. 
Like you were scared for your job every day mm-hmm. and you were learning this very complicated system, very archaic, complicated system that produced beautiful food and results. But it was based on a system where you had cheap, abundant talent and you controlled it mm-hmm. and you could be like, oh, you want to learn how to break down baby lamb? You got to come in five hours early today. Like, I'm sorry, there's no other way. Oh, you want to get to that next station? That's going to take you two years. <laughs> It was just like this hierarchy. You could not bust through it. There was only one way to cook. Not that long ago, just in New York, I can't speak for LA, like there was not many places you could eat affordably. It was still only seen as an elitist thing if you said, I like food, which is ridiculous. (laughs) Everyone wants to eat well. And the French way had such a stranglehold on how you could do anything that it suffocated any new invention. And then someone like Franagia comes along and the modern movement. Next thing you know, you have chefs. I remember being like, I don't want to use the metric system. <laughs> That's for wusses, bro. I'm like, wait a second. This thing is way more accurate than ounces and pounds. Why would we not want to get the most accurate measurement possible? Yeah. Because this is how we've always done it. And I found that in cooking, whenever your answer is, well, I don't have a better reply other than this is how we've always done it. That's a culture of truth Pure that needs football. to disappear. Pure football. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, to get to this station, you need two years. Because I think one huge part of this, the proliferation of the spread offense, is that colleges and high schools and now the NFL caring much less about age than they were. Lincoln Riley, who's probably the most innovative coach in America at Oklahoma, is 35 years old. And Cliff Kingsbury, you know, he was just barely above 30. And so now I think because colleges are doing that, the ideas get more and more impactful because it's like, okay, I don't care this guy's in 55 and didn't, wasn't the, you know, Texas A&M defensive coordinator for 10 years. He's got good ideas. Let's go. It is exciting to me because it shows age has nothing to do with it. It is merit-based. And that's something I still have a bias over. Like when I read about Sean McVay, he's 32. It's like, he can't be that good. He is that good. They say genius is a young man's game. And if you were to look at a lot of art and a lot of culture, I would say probably early 30s is where a lot of those brilliant things come from. So if football is an art, and I think play calling is an art, then I think that you need to consider guys like that. And maybe they have better ideas than someone who's 55. I mean, I think that if you hire a guy at 55 or 60 or 65, I think in a lot of cases you're conceding that a football coach, especially the head coach, is an organizational job, like a CEO. And I think some of these younger coaches are proving it's not just a CEO-type job. It's a, a piece of art. I do agree with that. I've maintained for a long time that the best chefs, not like historically, but the best ideas of chefs come from 27 to like 35. When you are reckless, when you don't know any better, and quite frankly, you don't have enough wisdom to tell you that's a bad idea. You just believe it can happen. And I think along the way, food could be in a much better place had we listened to the merit ideas. Like I remember going to cooking school and a French chef said, you can't cook pork stock. And I just come back from training. I'm like, I know it's delicious because they make it all the time and do something called ramen. And he was like, that's not cooking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, yeah. I have real information that this is a genuine thing, but you're telling me it can't work for what reason? I don't know. So again, whenever I see sports and I read articles, I continue to see merit based good ideas never work because of stupidity. And it drives me insane. Yeah. When the Dolphins started running the Wildcat, which is one of the first ever college schemes stolen by an NFL team, 
some of the players told me that Mike Vrabel, who was a Patriots linebacker, was just screaming, play real football. <laughs> and meanwhile, they're putting up, you know, they're scoring on every play. And all this guy cares about is you're not playing real football. And it's what is real football? Because this seems to be working. And when sous vide cooking happened, which is now like you can cook in vacuum in a plastic bag, you see a little bit more in home kitchens. It mm-hmm. definitely had too much of an impact, say 10, 15 years ago, where everyone thought that was going to be the future. Not to go into the details of cooking this way, but what I want to talk about was the allergic reaction. This was a seminal moment in 25 years of cooking where you had old school people like, that's cooking in plastic bags. That's not cooking. I don't even know what that is, but cooking is fire. Like chest thumping dudes, like this is meat and fire. Get that out of my kitchen. I don't even want to see that. Oh, you want to add a hydrocolloid? These are like chemicals. They're natural occurring substances that we use in foods all the time. They didn't want to know the science of it. It was like, food is just this. You know, I grew up working in restaurants where I was like, oh man, I want to work pastry, but they're like, no, that's not real cooking. (laughs) When in actuality, it is like the best way to think about cooking. So, so many things like right now, one of the arguments I have with my staff and other chefs is we have the vestige of something that is still from the French military system, the brigade of an oven range, like an island. We're talking about giant things that look like tanks okay. in fancy French kitchens and that I don't even know how to describe. They're built on a brigade system of 40 to 50 cooks, technically, or as little as like 10 to 40 to 50 cooks. And you work around this giant island making food, yet we don't need that anymore. And I'm a proponent of like, let's just use small electric spots where we are like segmented off and it just gives us more of a freedom to change, to evaluate differences. Yet I'm constantly finding sometimes with myself, like, well, that's not cooking. Right. If we don't have an oven range, are we even like, what are we doing? There was a kitchen called Alinea in 2004 from Chicago that opened up and it was one of the first restaurants that abandoned an island altogether. And people were like, that's not cooking, <laughs> but it's one of the best restaurants in the world. It's such a slow progress to get people to like challenge, why do we even do it? The island might've worked for 50 years, but we have different talent. We have different everything, but we're still holding on to things of the past. And I'm like, why can't we do this? So when I look at football and I see how long it takes, I'm like, can we learn anything to make it better across the board throughout all parts of culture? You know, And when I see the spread offense, I have to question myself because I'm like, well, that's not football. And you read the commentators, you, you read everything and they're like, the quarterbacks, they don't even know how to like to just spot the mic back or that's not playing quarterback. Or I remember like growing up, that quarterback, he's too athletic to play yeah, quarterback. Right. Like what the fuck was yeah, that about? Yeah. Right? Like real stupid vestiges of ignorance that I see also in food. And I just don't know how else to like explain this to people in my profession or people that even want sports because you have two industries, one where people know a lot more about football and sports and you have a population that's trying to learn a little bit more about the history of cooking and Mm -hmm. some of the esoteric nature of it all. So that's why I thought it was super interesting to have you on board because I do believe everything you talk about and everything I read, I'm like, wow, this is just like the history of cooking. Yeah. I think the overlooked trait is humility because you look at week one last year, the chiefs play the Patriots and they unveil some incredible spread schemes. The next week, the Patriots just steal those plays. Because they're like, you know what, this worked and we're just going to steal it. Even though it's not real football, whatever, we're just going to steal it. 
one of the biggest plays in the Super Bowl run by Doug Peterson was just stolen from Chip Kelly. And I just feel like when you have that sort of open mind and you have humility to say, it's not my idea, but it's a good idea, really good things can happen. And I I think that's being overlooked in this whole spread thing is that the coaches who are adopting it are the ones who aren't afraid to say, this is not my idea. And people are giving credit. Like, are they saying, hey, this is this coach's idea? Oh, yeah. All the time. I mean, that happened the other day with the Philly special. This is actually kind of funny. I don't know if you saw this, but basically the Browns ran the Philly special and Hugh Jackson, the head coach, was like, no, we didn't steal that play. We didn't steal that play. Then they asked Todd Haley, the offensive coordinator. He's like, absolutely, we stole that play. <laughs> and so that's just two different dudes. One of them wants to keep the closed loop in the NFL. No, we came up with that play, even though everyone saw it running the Super Bowl. And one guy who was a little more open-minded, Todd Haley, who's run a lot of different stuff in his life, was like, you know what? Absolutely, we stole that play. Not only did we steal it from the Eagles, but we stole it from Oklahoma and Clemson and Westlake High School. All of these places that have run it before, we stole it from them. Let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Cheng Show is brought to you by Le Creuset. As a chef, we always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients and knowing your suppliers, but using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories it creates and the style it expresses. They are the first to introduce color to the kitchen and are pioneers in enamel cast iron, which features the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. All cast iron is made in France since 1925 in the original French foundry, and each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsman hands. Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty. Bold colors and timeless design allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. I genuinely love Le Creuset. It not only populates my kitchen at home, it is the sort of cookware I love to serve in and to cook in at our restaurants. We use it almost exclusively at Major Domo in LA. It's just something that is a great gift. It's sort of a workhorse for me. Check out the new color from Le Creuset, just launched in September. Indigo is the truest blue. Inspired by the iconic natural dye, the rich, deep hue of Le Creuset's indigo is universally authentic. A timeless, true blue, and bold, neutral in style and cultures around the world. I think the color is great. We also have it at our restaurant. It really pops on the table. Get free shipping at lecrisay.com slash Dave with promo code Dave. That's lecrisay.com slash Dave, promo code Dave, D-A-V-E. And now back to the show. I don't know if we're there yet in the cooking world where people are giving credit to other chefs. I try to all the time because it's still this secretive thing that I feel I have ownership of something. And the reality is nothing's new in food, right? Everything's been done before. And our job is just to do it a little bit better. And um, the creation of ideas for years on the French end, on the high end, it was so insular. There was nothing outside of the world that was coming in until people started to be like, well, I want to take from this country. And obviously you have the hot debate of cultural appropriation, but It was the first time that happened really recently in food where as the world became more global and smaller, people were like, wait, I can do all sorts of stuff and I'm not just limited to this. And that causes people to get so scared, particularly journalists that don't understand what's going on. You have clientele that doesn't understand what's going on. And then 10 years later, it's like, oh, this is normal. And I don't know why I'm so stuck on that notion of like, are we ever going to learn that? We should just accept change quicker than rejecting it. What do you think that is? Do you think that that will change as 
new people come into the industry or older people age out? Because that's just, what the NFL, a lot of it is just it's moving faster though. Yeah. Wouldn't you say that the change is moving faster and faster in the NFL? Yes, because of technology, because you can look up a play that a high school ran on YouTube and just run it. Not only can good ideas come from anywhere, you can get thousands more ideas in a given week than you used to. Every team in the NFL has a guy on staff now whose job it is to just scrape the internet for plays. And basically that's what cooks and chefs are doing on Instagram, social media. It's like, it's so hard to get anything that is original anymore because it's going to be copied so quickly. And as a cook growing up, there was no internet. Like their lag time to find information about a chef in France was around 36 months. (laughs) So I would have a friend that worked for this chef, Alain Ducasse in Monaco, and he would send me postcards about what was happening and the dishes that they were working on. I had to wait almost three years to get the cookbook. <laughs> now, that's instantaneous. That kind of access to information has fundamentally altered my profession, and that's why it's so hard for me to see what's going on or what's around the corner in the culinary arts that, for whatever reason, I'm looking more and more, less in my own industry, into what's happening in sports, to fashion, to other parts of culture, because it's happening now, like, Football's like almost like two years ahead of cooking now. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm, I'm looking at cooking. I'm looking at what you're writing about and covering to give me insights to what I need to be prepared for. I appreciate that. I mean, it's just fascinating to me because coaches tell me now there's more change in a year or two years in the NFL than there was from 1970 until 1995. I think that pretty much all football, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and then into 2012, 2013, all look the same. With the exception of lack of HD cameras, it all looked the same. And now 2017 and 2018 are vastly different. And would you agree that those that are going to be most successful are the ones that adopt change the fastest? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You probably need to change your coordinators every couple of years. I mean, you, just because the ideas are going to change so much. I would be hiring people from the high school and college level constantly. Constantly. The Atlanta Falcons, I just talked to their coach a couple weeks ago. He was saying, we hired some guy who won five state championships. And every couple of days, we just say, well, what would you do here in high school? And that's- And for me, like hiring for so many years, like we have to hire from this two, three Michelin star restaurant, the fancy, fancy. Now, some of our best hires have come from like Cheesecake Factory, In-N-Out, like really different kinds of restaurant establishments Mm -hmm. that you would never try to draw talent from because- they have a completely different way of looking at something. And when you merge that with some of the stuff that we're working on, we have something that is for the first time exciting to do. And I'm just so much more open to looking at where we can get talent or whether it's from the cook end to someone that's going to ideate. So, man, I wanted to talk so much more about the nitty gritty, but then I realized I don't think anyone on my end is going to understand whatever the fuck we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating discussion. And I didn't know how directly this was going to apply, but every time you brought up another point, I was like, my God, this is football. And most specifically, just the reluctance to change. It is so fucking slow. Even now, like I'm a big believer in delivery foods. I've had two things that have failed in doing it, but I know it's going to happen. And people are resistant. They're just like, "Mm." I'm like, no, it's going to happen. And I get so frustrated that it definitely gives me hope when I see other parts of things that I care about embracing change and moving forward. Because just yesterday at my restaurant, I was talking to my managers, basically my offensive coordinators. I was like, why are we doing it this way? And 
just the prevailing rule now within all the restaurants I have is if you don't have a real definitive answer as to why we do something other than this is how we've always done it, we got to get rid of it immediately. We have to try something new or we're going to die, right? So I'm super competitive and I want to make sure that we're always ahead of the curve. That's why I wanted to talk to you because I was like, man, am I crazy to think that there's a lot of parallels? You're not. What's next then? What's the next version of the spread offense? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think there's going to be a lot more gadget plays because they work. I'm talking double reverses. I'm talking things, you know, I saw a thing the other day, you know, what if more than one guy who can throw the pass? You know, what if there's two people who touch it on every play in the backfield before something happens? I mean, I think there's a million things you can scheme gadget-wise. You know, when I was talking to Lincoln Riley, the Oklahoma coach, he was talking about this sort of double pass in the backfield that works so well. And I'm thinking, well, if you can run the Philly special 10 times a game and it works, just do it. And I think that might be the next step where it's more a couple of different people who can pass on the offense, that sort of thing. What about going for it on fourth down all the time and no more field goals? Yeah. No, I mean, that's... Or two-point conversions all the time. Statistically, you should always, pretty much always be going for it. Is that the last frontier for football? It's the last frontier. And it's, I would say that's even further down the line than just the adoption of the spread offense. Because remember, even Sean McVay went for it against the Seahawks, but he had to be talked into that. He is as innovative and as aggressive a coach as there is in the NFL. And even the fourth down stuff for him most of the time is a bridge too far. So I think that's going to be ownership. And there's teams that want to do it. There's ownership where there's forward thinking and they would sort of empower a coach to do that. But it's going to be the right marriage between ownership, a GM, and a coach to say, we're going to go for it on fourth down 65% of the time. Why is that so crazy? What's preventing people from being like, the math is in our favor. We should do this every time. Risk. It's truly just risk. I mean, you have to remember. Perception. The perception of risk. The idea that if you go for it on fourth down from your own 35-yard line and you don't get it and they score a touchdown immediately, that you're going to be right through the coals for a week. And I still think that the fear of that is very, very real. And I think that this is still, as aggressive as it's gotten, a risk-averse industry. And that, I mean, look, teams shouldn't even really run the ball that much ever. I mean, they, they should run play action. They should throw to the running backs. The running back can be valuable, but they run the ball on first down way more than they should. And, you know, we still had that. Sean McVay as Todd Gurley says so that's a little different, but, you know, Belichick has talked about this. He's not trying to be balanced. He's trying to win the game. Right. And Belichick, remember, he's gone forward and fourth down famously, but even he punts probably more than he should. And so I just think there is still... These guys who are head coaches now, even if they're 34 years old, they came up in the early 2000s when it was still defense and punting. So it's going to take an even younger coach with completely out-of-the-box ideas to sort of innovate with the fourth down stuff. And when I know that that's going to be a marker, I'm trying to imagine for myself what would be the similar analogy for cooking as a fourth down. Like I know for myself in my career, We've tried to push what that might be for the guest experience, trying to strip away the unnecessary stuff to just get to what works. We were one of the first restaurants to charge like bread and butter, like shit like that, where it seems obnoxious, but Mm -hmm. it proves a point as to how you could do something or not serving coffee, not serving desserts. People got fucking pissed. But to me, for a small restaurant, we need to have a faster turnover. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to alienate anyone, but like we don't have the talent and the size and the decor of someone else. So I'm not going to play their game. We have to play to our strengths. And people still get mad. We now serve coffee and desserts. But that to me is like, at that time in my life was like going forward on fourth. We're just never going to punt it anymore. And people were so pissed. 
And I didn't understand. I was like, it makes sense to me. Like we have nothing in our restaurant. This is as bare bones as possible. Yet we're expected to run this like everyone else. And that kind of agitation really pissed off people. Well, it's kind of like what Dan Mullen said about his offense with Urban Meyer at Bowling Green. You can only do a couple of different things well, so just keep doing it over and over again. Don't branch out into desserts if you're not ready. That's it. And now we're doing desserts because we can. But to me, it's always crazy. Every time I open up a restaurant, I assess the talent and I try to be like, okay, this person, we need to build our restaurant around them in this style. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to just force them like, I don't know if Robert Griffin III would ever be a good quarterback. If, if, what if Kyle Shanahan just let him play the Robert Griffin offense? Would that have been better for him? I think he did, and he had some success with it. I think the injury stuff was just too much to overcome. Mm. I mean, there's a guy who had ACLs in college, then he had an ACL in the pros, and it just never happened for him. So, you know, when I, I think about something like that, I'm like, is that even possible? So I don't know what's next, but I'm going to continue to follow your work and to get an idea because I'm looking for those markers that I know have this sort of same parallel in food. So I will stay close to whatever you're doing. I, appreciate I don't want to that. take any more of your time. Thank you for joining us. This has been amazing. This pod.